Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Welcome to the Healthy Gut Podcast with Rebecca Coombs, the place where you can learn how to achieve a happy, healthy gut. Here's what's coming up on today's show. Welcome to episode 27 of the Healthy Gut Podcast. And today I'm joined by Dr. Melanie Keller. Dr. Keller is a naturopathic doctor and is a National University of Natural Medicine alumna and specializes in the treatment of SIBO and associated conditions. She participated in the development of the SIBO Symposium, the SIBO Centre at National University of Natural Medicine, and co-authored the February-March 2014 Townsend Letter article, The Importance and Relevance of IBS in the Female Patient. Dr. Keller is a current board member of the Gastro ANP, a mastermind contributor with Seeking Health Education Institute, and has a private practice based in Los Angeles, California. Her evidence-based approach addresses epigenetic influences from microbial dysbiosis, malabsorption, and environmental toxins. And on today's episode, Dr. Keller and I talk about her four-step program to treat SIBO. Rebalance, reinforce, remedy, and renew. So I hope you enjoy today's episode with Dr. Melanie Keller. Welcome to the Healthy Gut Podcast, Dr. Melanie Keller. It's wonderful to have you on the show today. Yes, thank you for having me. My pleasure. And we're sitting here in sunny Los Angeles, uh, face-to-face, which is just wonderful for for me as an Aussie who's normally uh, sitting in Australia where I'm doing these um, interviews with all of my wonderful SIBO specialists. It's great to be here today with you. Yeah. So I'd love to start off by talking about your your own story, why you came to specialise in SIBO. Um, Well, so that's my own story is what got me into medical school. And and I attended the National University of Natural Medicine in Portland, Oregon. And for part of our hours, you have to observe another physician. It's called preceptorship and or you are a preceptee. And Dr. Steven Sandberg-Lewis was on a lottery list of doctors that you could um, have that opportunity with. So I put in for only him. There were multiple doctors, of course, that you could choose from, but I chose to only select one, and I won. I literally won the lottery, and within that, had the opportunity to be with him during a time where he and Dr. Allison Seebecker 
were doing a lot of work together. He had actually just written his um, book on functional gastroenterology, and I believe Allison even mentions that, how she took out the studies that he mentions in that book. And at the same time, I'm also a student of his in gastroenterology. So it was a great opportunity to um, not only be on shift with him, um, but to work with him privately. And he even extended that I could stay with him and study, uh, or excuse me, still work with him while I studied for my boards. So that was also nice. And I kept running into him and out in practice my first year, um, struggling uh, with natural medicine, anyone in Portland, Oregon. Um, but yeah, he noticed me. We keep running into each other. And he said, you know, I think you might want to join us. Um, and so, of course, I jumped at the opportunity and everything else is history in the sense of, you know, we were all there. Of course, they were doing a lot of the groundwork, getting the breath test machine in. And those were the things that I got to see as a student. And then as a new graduate, really helping to get the SIBO Center started and, and launching the s- symposiums, etc. So. Mm, yeah. Wonderful. And, and today you work with um, a lot of SIBO patients, um, often people who have been sick for some time uh, or unwell for some time and, and from the sounds of things often they've seen other practitioners and they might have done multiple rounds of treatments and they're coming to you in uh, you know, a bit of frustration I'd imagine. Yes, we lovingly call them a little bit of our unicorn farm and or, you know, we we have a group of of people who definitely have been seeking. um, And of course, now that SIBO is out there, it's kind of spread like wildfire that people can actually read and identify in something that relates to them. Um, But yes, absolutely. I probably see the most challenging cases um, so I've been told from other colleagues, et cetera, that I've worked with and or have worked with other experts in those fields. So it uh, makes my day very exciting. <laughs> and let's just talk about uh, SIBO, SIBO. It's so funny. Everyone calls it something different, SIBO, SIBO. Uh, I heard at the weekend at the Integrative SIBO Conference someone else calling it a, another way. I can't even remember what it was now, but uh, what it is now. But it's quite funny. We're, depending on where you live in the world, you give it a different expression. Um, so your approach to SIBO in terms of your your views around what it what it is and also how you like to address uh, uncovering you know why a person has ended up um, with this bacterial overgrowth in their small intestine how do I approach it what do I look at first yeah, and or? you know your, your views on what SIBO is oh what it is actually okay well that's great because I think that's why I actually spell say the acronym um, for example, we, I use the analogy, we don't say IBS, it's IBS. So I think that's the other piece of that I'm looking at. It's small intestine bacterial overgrowth. That is just stating a finding. And, you know, and now we know that we have a breath test to identify that. So to me, it's, it's, I don't want to just say that it's symptoms, but to me, it's not technically a diagnosis yet. It is a condition. It is a state. So I want to look deeper as to why somebody is in that state. So one analogy I use, and people in California can appreciate this because we pay extra for um, electricity. We have tier three, say, electricity. And I'll say, you really don't want to have a lint in your dryer vent and be paying tier three electricity in Los Angeles. 
you're not going to get your clothes dry. And in fact, eventually you're going to pay a lot of money for that. And if you don't remove that lint, it's inflammatory and could even cause a house fire, right? So that's the analogy that I like to say is that we have to identify where's the, you know, how much lint do you have? And that's by way of a breath test, of course. But then there's so many different approaches as to, to what somebody identifies there. And I might look at a breath test completely different than somebody else because I know more about their history as to why their numbers are what they are. I know how their symptoms um, are playing out and that I could potentially even forecast how they would feel given the height of the numbers. For example, I might say you might not feel better for three rounds of treatment because we're not even going to cut off the top of this layer. And at the same time, you might feel fantastic. And then all of a sudden you're going to hit this wall of like, what is this? And I would forecast that. I would say, yep, you're in this zone now. Now we're at this point. And sometimes we retest and, and confirm. And sometimes it's just given my clinical judgment where I say, mm, you're definitely at this place. And this is what I forecasted and we need to carry on. Um, and then we can go maybe based on symptoms. So I think that's the most important thing. And plenty of practitioners attempt to do that, to get people to that 75% or more improvement is was our general rule there for a while. Um, but at the same time, if it's not working, if what works for everybody else or what everybody says works and it's not working in that person, you listen. For example, I, I say, I'll give this two weeks. I know how well this works. And if you don't notice a difference and you don't say, yes, I want to continue this, we move on. And I think that's a really important point that um, it is about individualized uh, and an individualized approach to treatment. And whilst we can use uh, common practices that generally work, we are all unique. And so what will work for me won't necessarily work for the person sitting next to me with SIBO. And, uh, and I think that that can be very frustrating for the patient uh, when they're hearing others talk about, oh, I used, you know, I did two rounds of rifaximin and, and I was great and it hasn't come back. And they're sitting at round six and they feel worse than ever before. Right. Oh, yeah. Those are the people that I have to, I, I try and remind, I try and tell them ahead of time so that they're not mad at me when we get to that section where I go, remember, I told you this could happen. And then they go, oh, right. You know, I'll even, if I forecast, you could not have a bowel movement for up to a week and you could be doing everything and even contacting us going, Dr. Keller. And I would say, okay, you're almost through it. And what do you know? They all will just go, wow, how did you know that? You know, so. Mm. Mm -hmm. Constipation and diarrhea are such uh, common things of angst because we're experiencing them every day as, as is uh, what we eat and, and how we control our diet. Um, and in fact, I just had an email just last night from someone who was saying to me that since going on the um, on one of the SIBO diets, she's become incredibly constipated and she was seeking my help on what can she do for that. Uh, obviously, you know, we can't ever talk about a particular medical case because not, neither of us know their medical history. But why does something like that occur? You know, if we can speak in general terms of why someone might find that they went from having chronic diarrhea to studying treatment and then going to a constipated state? Well, I'll get right to it and say that it's about the fat content. I believe um, that the methanogens really like fat. 
They like saturated fat even more specifically. And, um, and the diet, and I think we're going to get there because I, I have a question mark about what is the SIBO diet um, in general. That's, we'll get there. Um, but if that is indeed what I think they're doing in restricting certain, um, restricting fibers, restricting polysaccharides, right? Then those fibers are what, you know, we talk about that. We know that that's the frustrating part of having this condition or this situation. Um, and that, to me, is what I would look at first. And so then there was this time period where they called them, you look for the four horsemen, right? Eggs, nuts. There's these specifics that I say, yeah, I understand that, but egg is important for choline and certain nuts right within a certain amount. I um, see that almonds have just taken off. In fact, was at Expo West, and my goal was at every single counter, show me something that does not have almonds in it, please, um, because of some other beliefs that I have on monocropping and saving the bees. <laughs> mm-hmm. But, you know, that's another thing that we can then develop an allergy or a food sensitivity, rather. You know, if we've had too much exposure to something, and, I mean, my goodness, almond is gone really quite wild. Um, and I myself even had an almond reaction. Now I did specific testing and I was off the charts for both roasted and raw almond. And within days of discontinuing that, it wasn't about Carnegian. It wasn't about the gums. It was about that nut. And now when I have it, if I ever have it, and trust me, I do try not to, and it's not easy. (laughs) So for all of you avoiding anything out there, yes, Dr. Keller has something she has avoids too. And, um, yeah, I will notably say it's not worth it. I don't like that. I will even have like a gluten reaction, kind of itchy on my face type of thing where I actually don't have the gluten reaction anymore yet. Almonds, boom, they're there. Okay. So to me that links over to even environmental toxins as almonds are not the cleanest things also. With regards to, um, and I'd like to delve more into to diet, but I think if we start first with your approach to actually treating uh, SIBO and how you go about it and what you address first, particularly if somebody has multiple ailments that they're dealing with at the one time. Okay, 100%. Um, number one, and I will be presenting this um, as best I can in multiple ways, I hope, um, at the SIBO Symposium, is if somebody has any autoimmunity, and I don't say autoimmune disease, I actually say autoimmunity, um, and or they've been on multiple rounds of treatment or the list goes on, I always look to, because my family is in dentistry, I look to the mouth, nose, ears, what's the history, right? A history of sinus infection, mouth. When was their last dental appointment? When is their next dental appointment? Because that right there can be an obstacle to cure if somebody is about to go have implants or a root canal in two weeks in the middle of their treatment. I might even wait and start their treatment after their dental work. Then I get to the stomach, and that is where I've found the most profound findings. Everybody talks about, and I will even say the president of Heidelberg Medical will even comment on my Facebook pages, and I appreciate that. Um, But it's interesting because he will focus on hypochlorhydria, and that was a lot of his commenting at first, and I'm excited to speak with him directly because I actually want to say "Mm, you'd be surprised, Um, actually not hypochlorhydria. In fact, over 
around 50% of my cases are hyperchlorhydria. And that was really profound to me because, again, if you look in the literature, we should then be going through an algorithm as to why. And so, for example, some people have had an endoscopy and they have specific findings, right? I always ask for that written report. And what do you know? It just so happens that there are findings in an endoscopy report that can be consistent with hyperchlorhydria, with hypochlorhydria. And yet even now the evidence is showing that they're kind of confused by it because they're now calling it, again, autoimmune gastritis. Okay, so that's that autoimmunity where we just put a big question mark like looming and hanging in the, you know, in the air, yet nobody's really addressing the question mark per se. And so by that being the gold standard, and trust me, I've been laughed at um, by plenty of gastroenterologists, and I've also said, well, it's still the gold standard. I don't care that it's from the 50s, and dust off that machine, and <laughs> let's get going. Because a Heidelberg is used in every study in medicine. A Heidelberg is used to launch any medication, because you have to know how that medication is going to be broken down in the stomach. You have to know how pH is affected. And we are regulated by multiple mechanisms, yet pH is one significantly. We know that's how this, the, even the small intestine functions. There's a change in pH. And so by identifying this, it was really profound. I mean, I've had one patient where she was, thankfully this was an office who, um, you know, there's, Dr. Jonathan Wright, who's actually written the book on why gastric acid is important. And when I was in Portland, I had the pleasure of being able to send people to that office directly. And for example, this patient was in their office for three hours. Um, that's how thorough they were at identifying she had achlorhydria, and they actually kept her in office to identify how much HCL she should technically have, which was really significant. I mean, not all offices will do that, I'll be honest with you. And yet, right at that, then I believe the next symposium happened where we were all having a roundtable discussion, and Dr. Pimentel mentions, well, we really want to be careful with giving HCL. You know, I really do understand your thinking and theories there from the naturopathic perspective. However, the hydrogen in the HCL could be contributing to, metha to methane. So that was years ago, right? And I was thinking, oh no, I just gave my constipated patients hydrochloric acid, yet it's helping her. Well, of course, because it was warranted, because she had a diagnosis of achlorhydria. And so that's another thing where people actually will come to me saying, oh, well, I have to be on HCL and I have to be on digestive enzymes. And on the contrary, I have found, and that's me as a doctor saying, whoa, I got myself checked and said, okay, this person coming in to me on HCL with raging diarrhea, okay, and what do you know, we identify hyperchlorhydria, clearly take them off of HCL, and do something as simple as sodium bicarbonate. Now, of course, that is also very much touching the surface because you also have to balance with a potassium bicarbonate technically. And again, we can even go further if we're doing this long term because it's about electrolytes and balancing of things. However, with baking soda in this case, this person who, like we were talking about earlier, had fear of being on in a vehicle driving to work, sitting in any type of traffic, right? It, going from that to even in their follow-up questionnaires, could this be baked from baking soda? I can't tell you how many questionnaires we have 
follow up saying, "Can I can't believe this is from baking soda. And it is profound. Um, and I'm also asking them, so anyone listening, please know that this is still something we are looking into. This is not something you should just rush out and do without having somebody know what you're doing. Of course, you can maybe get some symptomatic relief briefly, but that you definitely want to talk to somebody about this because even in finding that gastric acid imbalance, there's more to the story. There's, I need to look at um, why. Um, so there's testing for the parietal cells. Those cells make gastric acid. There's um, antibodies to intrinsic factor. That has to deal with how we process B12. Um, and again, that happens in the small intestine. So we're going to get to the importance of that as well. Those are all things that if we didn't identify them, and again, I'm going to really be able to show this, that there was a huge piece missing. Um, in fact, and I'm, I'm not going to go so far as pernicious anemia, but borderline pernicious anemia is actually quite rare. However, I have over seven cases just at the t off the top of my head that have positive antibodies to intrinsic factor, if not intrinsic factor, but both intrinsic factor and parietal cells. And again, this is an autoimmune gastritis. And my question is why? Um, and so I also look on the other side from the end endocrinology. Um, I also look at the liver, of course, um, and genetics slash epigenetics. Now this is incredibly, um, I don't wanna say possibly controversial in the sense that it's so dynamic. Um, there's no one particular frame that I ever see of a human being because of course we're constantly in motion. However, that can be such a significant piece um, regarding their history and or even just a simple supplement that can give me significant information to say, well, you know, again, I know that there's evidence about this. Um, let's say folate, um, for example, or folic acid. However, it's just not time for that right now. Your body's not absorbing anything. Um, and so that's the biggest thing in terms of we start in the stomach and after we leave the stomach, it's the next piece. And that is the pancreas, the liver, the gallbladder. And of course, bile is also a very key piece here. So it's a, it's a really um, broad uh, um, investigation from top to toe, really, uh, on what's going on. Um, it's more narrowed in the sense that if you have broad issues, to me, it's narrowed. Like, look at this. Look at the stomach. Look yeah, at the mouth. Okay. Are you chewing? Are you chewing? Are you anxious when you eat? Are you analyzing? Are you worried? Are you already thinking about the symptoms as you put that food in your mouth? Think about that. Mm. Because honestly, I, I would love to share how we were, um, I was going to be actually doing Heidelberg's testing at the SIBO Center. And Dr. Seebecker was uh, our demo person as we were going through how to do this. And she was so great about it. And, but she's sitting there and she's interested in what we're doing, but she's the patient, right? So she starts taking notes and we watch her pH shift. And, you know, it's just like, hey, wait a minute, can you focus and take a deep breath and get back to it? And what do you know, we watched her pH, you know, so she reacidified just perfectly, just the stress, just that interest, you know, we were able to see a change. And, and it's true, even from there's, there's studies that show from us not eating, 
there's a percentage of people who will go a chlorhydric or hyperchlorhydric. So that period of fasting, right? But people do that because they're just afraid to put food in their mouth. Um, or people do that because they actually have hyperchlorhydria. If you do not, ha- if you have hyperchlorhydria, your stomach doesn't want to empty. So these are even people who are kind of wasting away. Mm. They are hungry, they're famished, but they, they can't eat much. Their stomach doesn't empty. And again, I can think of another case off the top of my head with just from baking soda. He's in Canada saying, Dr. Keller, now people are envious of what I'm eating. They're looking at my plate and going, oh, I want what you're having. And that, I just got choked up from that. That Mm. was just amazing because this person was very underweight. And so to hear them talk about eating four lamb chops and, <laughs> and feeling like they weren't even full and, oh no, what about my migrating motor complex? I say, you have at it. You wake up in the night, you're hungry. I don't care. Just eat. Yeah. Because your body is just now getting food and nutrients for the first time. And, um, yep. So, yeah. And that I hear from people that are in that, um, state quite frequently that they're, that they are really wasting away um in terms of treating uh, sorry testing for all of this uh are there multiple tests that you will do as your baseline when you commence um, working with a patient absolutely yes we we offer that information to patients new patients so that they can identify what it is see financials etc mm-hmm. and i think that's one of the challenges um that there is an expense to treating um any kind of illness or, or condition that's um, going awry in the body, uh, what's your what's your guidance or um, recommendations to people that are like, I just can't afford it. I've spent all this money. Um, what what are your views on that? On on how we are to attain health and and test correctly. You know, it's it's challenging because I feel for people. I was that person. I've been there and. It's hard. I, I even say to myself, if I was looking for a doctor, I, I mean, it's it's not easy. Even I am looking, you know, I, I'm i the doctor who goes to other doctors saying, listen to me, this, you know, there, this is what's happening. Um, so I understand the apprehension of going to an expert. And then it's the, okay, well, who's right? Because there is definitely um, back and forth or, or differing opinions. <clears throat> To me, I always tell everybody, if you want to know where you are, if we need it, we, we want a roadmap of me knowing exactly, and it's only a snapshot of where they are right now, then they have to have a lactulose breath test. And of course, there are all different solutions we can get into as far as that goes. And in, and in fact, I do offer that. There's new sucrose testing. There's new, you know, we can get into the alls and the different forms of sugars that we could be testing. However, again, if somebody is coming to me in a frail state, I will walk them through, look, this could really affect your system. And it may or may not be worth it for us to know where you are. But you have to know, and I will repeat, that we did not have a roadmap from the beginning. Because there are some hard sides to this, okay? I am sometimes treated like a punching bag. I am sometimes yelled at because why didn't my so-and-so figure this out at Mayo Clinic? 
I have had people stomp and shout, and generally we let that happen, but I also have to set boundaries because I will also have somebody argue with me or debate with me, and I that's just not the right fit because I understand where they are and they're not ready. But when they're ready and we have even a brief conversation and say, look, this is why you are where you are, not where anybody else is. You are this person. You were born this way. You had this happen to you when you were younger. You had a head injury at this age, etc. for you to understand why you are where you are right now, period. And then I'm communicating with that person. You tell me what's going on with you. When I give you this, what happens? You're in charge, but I know why and what's going on. And by you giving me those key notes and key words, I'm able to identify something. To me, and I apologize to anybody out there, but I do not find stool testing helpful. We talked about it earlier. If you were restricting your diet, you are going to have dysbiosis. Period. If you have been eating strictly fat and protein, you are going to have some malabsorption. And trust me, anytime I see a stool test, I say, you know what this tells me? You need to eat some carbohydrates. And for a lot of people listening, they've been on restricted diets for a long time. Exactly. And they spend a, I don't feel comfortable with the amount of money that can be spent on a stool test because it's not giving me information. Now, if I'm trying to rule out or somebody comes to me with it, with an, a comprehensive stool test and yes, I'm looking for calprotectin, you know, there's, there's things that you want to make sure that there's not an inflammatory marker or if, of course, uh, secretory IgA, fecal secretory IgA is incredibly helpful. However, again, history taking is very helpful listening to your patient is very helpful. And by golly, get your hands on people. Because I have felt adhesions or adhesion-like things, or even what I suspect might be from embryology, the way that the stomach flips over, and then there's the section where it becomes the heart and or the stomach. And I can feel webbing or, you know, certain ways of maybe some connective tissue that needs to go to another practitioner or physical therapy, for example. And those are things that can be quite frankly overlooked and can be less expensive. They can be more of an investment of getting to a good body worker or even acknowledging some of the emotional components that are here. I think a lot of people don't recognize that they, um, they're around people who may not understand why they're sick or what form of sickness they have because it doesn't appear on the outside per se. And so they really start to retreat from everyone and they go online and they find comfort in other people, of course. However, I remind people that is your partner. You need to nuzzle them. You need to get up in there and smell the pheromones and be comforted by this person. You don't have to talk about it. Don't talk about it, you know, and or set a date and say, gosh, I'm going to have a piece. I don't care if it's an inch by inch square of cake or a sip of a spirit, not wine, folks, <laughs> that's fermented. <laughs> and yet that can be something that is that something to look forward to as tiny as it is, or a bubble bath and sitting down with your family and saying, this is me, this is my time, this is what I need, regardless of you looking at my crazy dietary behaviors, um, this is the way that I need my self-care. 
and and or I also encourage people to sit down and talk to people and say, you know what, generally they've found me, and but you know that we can say, let's get the family in on the fact that we have a team now, and you have somebody to talk to. Um, and yeah, so those are probably the first steps that people can take. Of course, I really appreciate emotional freedom technique or tapping, as it's also known that um, actually has really great evidence for reducing cortisol levels. They have um, studies using it in PTSD. They're actually um, open to that with the U.S. military. So these are really great items that people can add in. And I also talk about at the in the Townsend Letter article that I wrote with Dr. Sandberg-Lewis and Dr. Seebecker about a history of abuse, um, more so in females that this is coming up, but it actually has happened in men, with men as well. One of my questions for risk factors is, have you ever had an abdominal injury? Um, that could be you know, from a motor vehicle accident, seatbelt, um, et cetera. And I had one gentleman share with me that, yeah, my brother used to punch me in the gut every time he saw, you know, really hard and really like he, even in doing, again, a physical exam here, it, it was very notable. Um, and so that was a deep thing for that person that I think the fact that we even acknowledged it um, was very eye-opening. And um, I didn't even necessarily think to think that, right? But um, there are multiple things that, again, if it's not asked, there's that history part then you wouldn't know that that's a key piece of even just an emotional side of things. Definitely. And I think the emotional uh, psychological com- uh, component of of any form of illness uh, is so important because if we're not in a um, – in a state emotionally and mentally that is receptive to um, improving health, if we're hanging on to all of those negative emotions, be it conscious or subconscious, I don't. I personally feel that our bodies can't heal. And my own experience was when I was going. It was so interesting how how life happens. When I finally got my diagnosis with, uh, you know, yes, you've got too much bacteria in your small intestine. <laughs> you know, hallelujah. There's now a reason why I've got the, all of these. Um, uh, symptoms occurring um, but at the same time as I was dealing with that I had to deal with my mindset but I also had to deal with um, the fact that I'd been uh, sexually abused for many years and the perpetrator of that um, horrific abuse uh, died uh, around the time that I was dealing with SIBO and so all of a sudden I realized the connection with my psychological trauma and my gut and I started working with a very skilled uh, psychologist who helped me work through that and so much of the emotional release was coming from my gut but only when I started doing that work and started working on my mindset and really doing you know focusing on what I could do with life not what I couldn't do my healing sped up so it's I'm passionate about psychological and emotional aspects when it comes to um, recovering. Wow, that is so touching, and thank you for sharing that. It means a lot to me that you felt safe to share that with everyone here. Yeah. And um, it's so important and so personal on that level of that connection you made and the and it's actually something that you could recognize the healing process. And um, I'm going to get hopefully get through this very well, but I'm actually experiencing some crushing grief myself and uh, and how interesting that you're absolutely right. Of course, my symptoms have kind of popped up, um, probably not 
anywhere near um, where they would have, I would say, even a year ago. But uh, yeah, it, it, I can I can definitely, and it is, it's, it's the stress, right? It's this stress mm-hmm. component that um, can really rock our bodies. And, but again, thankfully, I kind of recognized that and said, oh, okay, make sure healer heal thyself. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm sorry to hear that you're going through some grief as well. And it's a nice thing that happens, even though grief is not nice, is that when we have evolved in our own awareness, that we can now that you're in a position that you've just said, and I know that I am, that when those experiences now happen I now understand so much more and so I can cope with it a lot more and I don't beat myself up like I used to yeah. now I'm like okay this is the period of time that you're going through yeah, I'm Except, human yeah have a human experience exactly. have a human moment wow <laughs> <laughs> you know accept the fact that you've you've got some inner turmoil going on so your digestive system may not be its optimal happy self yeah, I Be didn't eat for days. I I was oh, what day is it? What have I eaten? And yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, just kind of that. And we can't be perfect 100% of the time. And, you know, we strive for perfection in so many areas of our life. But what I think we should be doing is just giving ourselves a big cuddle sometimes and Absolutely. saying it's okay. And you know what I actually say when I when I say to actually eat some carbohydrates and people will stare at with me at these big eyes and and I say, yes, I'm the doctor encouraging you to try some potato chips. And yes, try the coconut oil, the avocado oil, the whatever oil, you know, try them all. <laughs> and then I'm the doctor that's saying, yes, have that rice or, you know, and they just can't even believe it. And I know I've had people where I say it might take you a week to take that mouthful. That's okay. Mm. Just do it when the time is right. And yes, you might have some symptoms, but honestly, I have more people that say, um, so I was hearing these cravings and the cravings would come from, I've heard I ate an entire box of Lara bars, Lara bars right there with nuts and dates, um, to I ate an entire jar of cashew butter. Like these are like, I'm the priest, like they're confessing to me. And I just say, that's okay. That's great. You gave in to what you wanted to do. And I actually believe there's microbes calling us to do those things. Uh, mine call me to eat uh, gummy bears and worms, <laughs> the organic, of course. But yes, I welcome that. So when I hear that critter, I go, yes, bring on the gummies. But of course, <laughs> I only get the small pack. Um, and interestingly, I can feel better now. Whereas before, I would have thought, never, not ever, maybe that one movie, if I was going to a premiere, would I ever treat myself to a gummy thing ever again? Oh, no, that is not out of my life now. I can actually sit down and have a gluten-free piece of pizza and lose weight. Yeah, Uh uh-huh, that's right. (laughs) Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Let's talk about, we've talked about how you uncover some of the underlying reasons for why bacteria has overgrown in the small intestine, starting at the mouth and looking at the pH of the stomach. How do you then go about um, working out a treatment plan for people? Uh, I think from the people I hear from, it seems quite rare that they only have an overgrowth of bacteria. They seem to have a multitude of other things that are going on in their system. So how do you work out what to treat and which one to treat first? Sure. And I know there's another, um, <clears throat> even Kalish, I'd say, talks about Dan Kalish and the people who are trained there look at the um, what I and most people refer to as the triad, the thyroid, adrenal, gonad um, triad. And um, at least I, it's my understanding that they look at or are also trained to establish that, get that foundation um, stabilized first. And that is 100% where I'm definitely looking at right now in terms of, I look at the stomach, if there's dysregulation or, you know, it's imbalance in the stomach, I will tell people we will focus on that. Again, I have my two week kind of set points. I'll say you could feel better in two weeks. It could be 30 days. We could really kind of, again, it depends on the state that they're coming to me. And although I recently had someone that I thought might take 30 days and within two weeks, it's just phenomenal to watch, you know, to read the the follow up questionnaires, and and they enjoy that as well. Um, so sometimes that can be. I know that sounds profound, but just addressing gastric acid, I will give it at least thirty days, sometimes up to sixty. And then with gastric acid is bile, and so I am using ox bile often. And say, for example, I might not necessarily know, but this constipated patient, this is happening in quite a few cases now, they're on the, they're on, um, they're balancing their gastric acid. I will not get specific on that. They're balancing their gastric acid. They begin to titrate up some ox bile and suddenly they're having profuse diarrhea. Um, here are some keynotes. It's usually acrid. Um, there's usually burning at the rectum. For some reason, they don't mind this diarrhea. Everybody will say, well, it got really bad. And they're usually increasing their ox bile to a certain point. And then for some reason, they'll either stop or, you know, kind of back off. But they'll still have this diarrhea. It's controllable somehow, you know, but they feel this burning, acrid, these keynotes of, um, and even possibly having the sulfur smell. So I just go, fantastic. We finally got those guys. And, you know, we're, I'm excited to know that we will be able to measure hydrogen sulfide here in the future, very near future. Um, but at the same time, I just go, and that little critter is really a challenge to treat, yet very responsive, at least in my opinion, thus far to oxpile. Um, and yeah, so it is very interesting in terms of I see a completely different response than when it's methane reduction. Um, and everybody welcomes it. Everybody says, all right, well, I'm just going to stay right here. I can, I can handle this. And they kind of go through, like I mentioned earlier, about that 10 days of constipation maybe. They kind of go through this once the burning ends, once the something, you know, there's all these like things that start to dissipate that they then feel significantly better. Oh, mind you, while they're having this diarrhea, they are feeling better they are feeling much better and they kind of start to crave some carbohydrates. And so that's when they might, again, need to hear a little green light from me. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about food because food is one of those things we can, us SIBOers can 
get obsessed with. Uh, there's various diets, yes. uh, but also there's such a, you know, a, a person knows that they can put something in their mouth and then they can feel a certain way and often quite quickly. So it's understandable that we can become obsessive over what we put in our mouth because it can be a sense of control over something that we feel like we often oh, have no control, control over yeah. mm-hmm. with this condition, uh, with this excess bacteria. What's your approach to f- food consumption uh, with treating SIBO? No, and people aren't going to like it. <laughs> but I'm going <laughs> to say I throw it all out the window. Mm-hmm. Anything and everything. I, I offer testing, of course, because I actually found it very, very, very helpful. Um, down to, and if somebody comes to me, they have inflammatory bowel disease. Again, there this this particular testing looks for other components like. Um, transglutaminase, for example, or shrimp tropomyosin. These are inflammatory things and markers. Or, for example, I reacted to beta-glucan. Or, you know, there are gums that are also tested in this um, testing. And so I thought that that was really interesting. Now, at the same time, I had the pleasure of being able to speak to somebody, the person who developed a lot of those testing, and I'd say, hey, do you think it's possible that there's a cross-reaction of the bacteria producing these reactions to food? And he looked at me and he said, ah, okay, now we do have a new test that's out that's all about pathogens. And so I thought that was very interesting because I do also, you know, again, look at that and yet also ask myself, do I need to identify the microbe? Because they all will respond to a specific environment, which I mean is estrogenic or catabolic versus anabolic, really. Um, so... So in terms of um, restricting carbohydrates, for instance, or eating carbohydrates, so Dr. Mark Pimentel has been uh, recorded as saying to feed the bacteria and that creates an enormous amount of confusion. Oh, and, let me tell you why that happened. That was, and that I just, that was another one that spread. Okay, so we all have to consider that Dr. Pimentel was coming to Portland, Oregon for the first SIBO symposium where we had every detail even down to the food, right? And he was a little bit like, whoa. I have a different population. That's all he was saying. He was just saying and and sharing with us, look, my population is a standard American diet. I'm not going to convince them. And nor did they want to. Again, they had that research aspect. They see it and they say, absolutely, you could restrict that and get symptomatic improvement. And at the time, that's what we thought we wanted. Yet at the now, and I know because of, and I'm going to go ahead and say it, borderline orthorexia that has been spread trending, um, if not straight up orthorexia in some of these cases, that that just has to stop because everybody is grasping for, and quite frankly, even my patients, they can speak to me and inevitably a blogger will send something out. And what do you know? I'll have the same question from 10 people. Now, meanwhile, they're right in the middle of treatment. I know exactly where they are. I know exactly what's happening with them. Yet they still will get romanced by that podcast and or something that's come out. And it's always generally a new product that's going to fix everything. And I, that's my challenge. And that's why every follow-up questionnaire says, what are you taking now? Mm. down to the spirulina in your smoothie let's talk about it and you don't have to hide 
you know, again, people, something might work for somebody else, but oftentimes people have then said, oh, right, no, I did add this, or I increased my coconut oil. What do you know? Um, there can be some real key things that I just say, I know that that's out there and it's heart wrenching to be the one to deliver the news sometimes. But I really focus on what is your family? What is your budget? What are your ethics? What do you care about? What's in season? Um, I, you know, sometimes I really want to stay local and sometimes I really want some raspberries, even if they're from out of country. But you know, that's for me. And, um, but I always will try and direct people to non-GMO organic whenever possible. Of course, that also has to be within your budget. But I look at those things as part of your health slash life insurance plan. And we do the best that we can do and look at dirty dozens and such and whatnot. But yeah, I really try and throw everything out the window and that can leave people spinning for a while. And then at the same time, it can also throw them into a liberating celebration of life. <laughs> and food should be celebrated and enjoyed. Absolutely. It is our nourishing um, life force. Like I think of that, the, the, the lamb chops, Dr. Giller, I'm eating these <laughs> lamb chops. <laughs> and it's it's my own... Um, views and journey around food has evolved so much uh, because when I first um, discovered I had SIBO, I was definitely orthorexic with my food. Uh, I had experienced an eating disorder in my teens and it was a major trigger in terms of control because suddenly I had permission by my practitioner to control my food and I became obsessive over it to the point where, you know, it caused a lot of arguments with my partner and my partner and I even broke up for, for some months because I was probably an absolute nightmare to be living oh, with. Yeah. Um, and then when it came to reintroducing the foods, I was the, I was the excellent, most perfect patient on compliance with the SIBO biphasic diet. But when it came to reintroducing foods, the fear I felt was overwhelming at reintroducing higher fiber or higher carbohydrate foods. I recognized I was very, very conscious of how I was and I was working with my psychologist at the time around my control with food. And so I had the support of a qualified professional, which was great, but I was also, I was very conscious of my behavior and really watching it for signs that it was developing into um, bulimia, which is what I had um, experienced in Mm -hmm. my teens. And it didn't go there, which was great, but I was very conscious of it. Now, two and a bit years on from my um, from that original breath test, which showed my hydrogen dominant excess, um, and three cookbooks later, I actually have really evolved my thinking. I think that it can be great to have a reduction of certain foods for immediate symptomatic relief, which can be really beneficial psychologically. But now that I can eat almost anything that I want uh, within reason, and I really choose to eat whole foods, locally um, produced where possible. Um, I don't want to eat processed food as a general rule, but I've been traveling these last two two weeks and I've eaten a lot of processed food because I've been on the road. I can now do that um, without experiencing the pain and suffering that I once did. But I think it's really important for us to get back our love and passion with food and as to eat as broadly as we can from a variety of food groups so that we can be getting the best 
nutritional value possible. And I'm not a nutritionist or a doctor. I'm just a woman that has developed this view from my own personal experience. And I, and I think that the guidelines are great, uh, but I think the most important thing is we get back to eating as broadly as possible, as quickly as we can. Right. Well, I think you said it. I mean, and I said it every single SIBO Center meeting. It's a guideline, not a rule. Definitely. And, and I hope that the, um, you know, anyone listening to today's podcast uh, does remind themselves of that when they're going into that zone that I know oh so well, which is, oh, what does the list say? Oh, you know what? If you really want to eat something, why don't you, like you've said, Dr. Keller, why don't you try a little bit? Plan for a little square, a little inch mm-hmm. by inch piece of that. If you are dying to have it, well, have it. See what happens. Oh, you got to have it. Yeah. That's what I say. I say, have at it. And now I listen. I, I'm excited for confession. I'm like, Ooh, what was it? What did you have? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Definitely. And um, it can often be quite liberating. Um, and I found that when I was going through treatment, I was having foods uh, that weren't on the biphasic list. So I didn't know whether they were compliant or not. Mm -hmm. So I just ate them and I was absolutely fine. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was able to tolerate onion and garlic without a problem. I ate it throughout my journey because I thought that it was the fructan that I needed to avoid, but I didn't have a problem with them. So I ate them. I also had raw cacao powder or cocoa powder um, the whole way through, which is technically not supposed to be introduced till the final phase. So Mm -hmm. uh, you know what? let I think it's good to be able to experiment. That was so great because you also just shared how stringent you can be, yet you did give yourself some leniency, right? Because again, yeah, no, I know that I've had SIBO since I was a child and it's the, you know, always having been heavier and um, the every time you go on the quote unquote diet and you're doing everything right, this whole calories in, calories out. Okay, well, why is it that I'm eating 1500 calories and still gaining three pounds a week? You know, that's where um, and, and people can relate to that or even getting on the scale and, and that practitioner kind of and I'm like, nope, keep going, you know. And how is it to look or or be 30 pounds heavier, I would even say, like sometimes profound. And yet, and I would even know that that's, it's like inside me somewhere. Like you can't see it necessarily on the outside per se in some cases. And um, so, yeah, again, talk about like an eating disorder in the sense of like ever since I was a child. Now, mind you, my family was also in dentistry, so sugar was not around much. (laughs) Um, but it was always that you don't get to have that, Mm. you know, from about six years old on. And, you know, again, I look at my history and how I was born and when I was introduced with antibiotics for an ear infection that I did not have, et cetera, and how that really set me up. And if we look at the diseases that have happened, quite frankly, especially obesity, um, that also trends and correlates with the induction of environmental toxins as well not Mm. only obesity but diabetes and multiple other chronic conditions Mm, yeah definitely um so the next thing i'd like to talk to is around your approach or your take for patients when they have seen multiple doctors and they've done multiple rounds and they might either be the same or their uh, figures are worse. Why is why is that happening? Why can people be doing multiple rounds of treatment, and then they retest, they redo their breath test, and their methane and/or hydrogen is even higher than it was before? Like, what's your um, take on that? 
Um, well, I think some of that is the patterning of the microbe themselves. They have really set themselves up for success. Um, I say, for example, and I believe I'm quoting saying this properly, um, Dr. Pimentel and I have talked about where 100 people can be exposed to salmonella, but only 10 of them, right, might develop the antibody to the cytolethal distending toxin. And yet, if they do develop this antibody to that toxin, they're five times more likely to be susceptible to another food poisoning or traveler's diarrhea, again, one of the top four culprits. And so that is the microbes being really wise, and we know that there are more of them than of us, um, and they have they want to survive. Um, so that's what people forget. They should be in the large intestine. They want to proliferate. They are meant to be there, um, but they're just in the wrong compartments. And I tell people they say they just didn't get to the right party yet, and we got to scoot them along into the other room. Um, and yeah, so I think that is a huge component. Some people can come to me and I look at their breath test and say, well, no wonder you haven't even scratched the surface. Um, but at the same time, if it's been extended period and or they have extensive risk factors, then generally that is the breakdown of the endocrine system. So, um, you know, the body's been, I describe it as a factory. I have to walk through somebody's factory and say, okay, where are the lights? Where are the lights without sound? Where are the lights flashing? Where is the end product just sitting there and everybody's gone on break because they're like, oh, we don't have to work anymore. Who's out back smoking? I mean, I look at the whole factory and say, what in the world is going on here? And within that, I'm able to then say, well, you're not going to get anywhere quite frankly. And unfortunately, those are the people that I do see because they have been so broken down. The body has been waving flags and screaming alarms for quite a while that it finally just gives up. And that's the adrenal glands predominantly. And the thyroid is kind of within that. Again, it's a triad. They start to um, I don't know how many women have maybe seen their cycle shift. Um, I used to see when I could get rid of the overgrowth that the cycles would come back and la-di-da, even polycystic ovarian syndrome. What do you know? Doesn't exist anymore. I was diagnosed with that. I don't have that. Um, back in when I was 16 years old. Um, so again, that's an estrogen. That's that's androgens that are dysregulated. And when we have androgen disorder, that can lead us into a catabolic state. And that's predominantly what we're seeing here. Again, the body has been screaming for ATP and energy and mitochondrial, and it's not going to get it from a B complex. It is not going to get it from a glutathione push. In fact, in some of my patients with their genetic and epigenetic tendencies, that's the worst thing for them or superoxide dismutase, you name it, that is supposed to be the fixer-upper, it might not in this person. In fact, it might even create more of a havoc. Now, whenever that havoc happens, I'm generally saying that's giving me information. So somebody actually feels safe because they say, this is what happened to me, Dr. Keller, can you tell me what, what you think is going on versus you did this to me, Dr. Kell, or everybody gets these done, what's wrong with me because I didn't react properly to glutathione. That wasn't the wonder thing for me. In fact, I feel miserable from my intravenous nutrient drip. And I don't do intravenous, you know, I, I wouldn't do that because even though we're malabsorbing, it's still about what are those individual enzymes and glands, how are they going to respond? So quite frankly, I see um, downright where I might have a 50-something-year-old person in front of me, 
But endocrinology, they are in their 90s. Their body is really that far advanced and said, you know what, you just haven't heard me. So um, I'm catabolic now. I'm breaking stuff down. I love your analogy of the factory. It, I think it's a really great visually uh, of thinking about what where people are on smoke break and who's <laughs> <laughs> left lights on when they've left the room. Yeah, and <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, where are the people um, joining Who's forces? on the internet, right, yeah. <laughs> checking Facebook versus... Uh-huh. No. But also just that comment about, you know, the, these bacteria are supposed to be in the large intestine or the colon and so their job is to grow and populate and I think that's... I think that uh, might hopefully provide some comfort to people that you know just because you might see your numbers go up well you know that, that don't feel so bad about it don't feel so hard on yourself that your numbers have gone up because these little guys are just doing their job exactly and for example I will show them somebody if they have a three-hour breath test I will show them, look, you don't have hydrogen in your large intestine. Look at how long you've been restricting your carbohydrates. And so I have really great, actually multiple breath tests where I'm able to show this person started eating carbohydrates, yet the met the hydrogen came down in the small intestine, and yet the hydrogen went up in the large intestine where it should be, and the person feels good. Mm. Let's talk about methylation. Um, It's something that is really starting to do the rounds in the um, forums on the chat forums and all the rest. (laughs) I'd like to start off with, you know, let's, let's start at the basics for the listeners that don't know what methylation is and then why um, methylation pathways are something that we should perhaps be thinking about in um, when we have SIBO. Sure. And I'm going to be very careful not to get into a three-hour lecture zone um, in the sense that when we think of methylation, think of um, DNA. And um, I think my best analogy that um, a lot of readers, might, listeners might be familiar with is the um, intestinal lining or like our skin, right? We slough off um, enterocytes. They're, they're happening every three days, let's say, right? That we're getting a new lining of enterocytes. And that is all methylation. Okay. So I figured if that can kind of help everybody get to that component of why methylation is important, think leaky gut, you know, think of assistance in those enterocytes are aiding us in multiple things. Um, And then we look at the folate cycle and the methionine cycle as that relates to methylation as a whole for biochemistry. And of course, if we're looking at um, a Monet, painting of this, we are looking at, right, the pinpoint top of a head when we're looking at the biochemical um, components here. So let's all try and keep that in mind, just like how we're isolating down to, ooh, methane and hydrogen. Um, there's more to that story that will continue to unfold. There's more to the glucose and lactulose. So again, please take into consideration anything in those steps that I'm saying here, because MTHFR, which gets the claim to fame, um, and many people now, there's more even conventional medicine is looking at this marker in in cardiovascular and rheumatology, which is fantastic. Um, But that's also just one enzyme. There are some enzymes prior to that um, in this pathway from folate to reduce to the MTHFR, and there's multiple steps there. And so I might say, sure, you might be heterozygous or homozygous, but what is the step before that? And that step actually requires a significant amount of ATP. And um, 
that's one of the first components of the folate cycle. And so ATP is that energy of the cell. And I also happen to know, know for sure that the environmental toxins are what's also disrupting the cell. So that's one of the things when I'm looking at that catabolic state and there's a way to actually calculate what's called the free androgen index. And I'm able to show my patient if ideally the index should be one, let's say, and I can show them and calculate out, you are 0. 0.000, sometimes 0. 0.8, okay? That gives them a frame they say, oh, and I say, when we get to this zero, when we drop a zero, you could feel much, you know, when we get up to one, you will feel like Humpty Dumpty is put back together again, okay? Um, but the ways, the steps that get us there are sometimes challenging. So the methionine pathway is where we're looking at um, methylcobalamin and just all the cobalamines we're also addressing homocysteine and then the cbs enzyme also has that claim to fame um, and again it was great information in the literature and now we just have more information so sometimes it's like yep we want to always make sure that we're expanding our knowledge um, and not just making assumptions that because we have elevated homocysteine we give blank blank and blank um, we now do have access to more information. So the importance of, for example, the folate and B12, these are all components of phosphatidylcholine. And phosphatidylcholine is 70% of what bile is, is made up of. And that actually uses 70% of methylation. So to even create bile from phosphatidylcholine, we need folate, B12, and choline. So that's where I jump in on methylation. It's all about bile. But you see how I have to kind of say, okay, I have to take the long trip to then hone in on um, a bit more of a specific item. And that does not mean that I supplement with phosphatidylcholine, although I do and have sometimes. Um, I actually look at, again, I look at that factory and say, I don't want to give the end product because everybody's on break. I got to give the assembly line some work to do. Um, and so it just so happens that SAM E, which is also a cofactor for um, the COMT enzyme, that is a part of this methionine cycle. So those are components that I look at because COMT enzyme relates to how we process estrogen, for example. And how does one know if they've even got a methylation issue happening in their body? What are your markers? Oh, sure. Um, well, I use a salivary marker from um, a pretty well-known company, 23andMe, um, is out there. And there's even this Ancestry versus 23andMe. And it's my understanding 23andMe gives more specific data that I utilize. Um, I take that raw data and I'm uploading it into um, the Stratagene report, which is through the Seeking Health Institute, Dr. Ben Lynch. Um, who is a cellular microbiologist and my super nerdy, <laughs> I'll call him a friend in the sense that he has helped so much with um, the amount of information that he isolates down to what has evidence. And I feel very confident with that because I used to sit down with 45 pages of different report um, options that are out there. And trust me, that was mind boggling. And even now I'm still at a report that has 19 pages it's still mind-boggling, but it's um, it's actually a lot of fun. Mm, yeah. And so, are there are there certain symptoms that you 
can look for um, that would indicate that there is a methylation problem in your body? Symptoms, more specifically. Not necessarily. I generally will start with, I mean, uh, my my biased opinion is because I see over 80% of people have a methylation, you know, so that's where, again, but that's my population. Um, and again, then that's within even just that first marker, that MTHFR marker. So then when I look deeper behind the curtain, I call it, um, and I'm looking at these other enzyme pathways, MAOA and B and the COMT enzyme more specifically, um, that's where I get so much more information. They tell me about that IBS uh, serotonin drug they were on, and I'll look at it and go, oh, well, no wonder. You're homozygous at this place, and that's why serotonin reuptake inhibitors made you worse, if anything. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. It's something that uh, I, my naturopath based in Australia and I have talked about uh, testing me for MH, uh, MTHFR. Uh, I haven't gone and done it yet. It's one of those things that <laughs> I kind of got test um, overload. Oh, I just yeah. was sick of doing tests. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, I'm having a break. <laughs> yes. We're just going to pause from all the testing for the moment. I'm just going to get on with Larry life for uh-huh. the moment. Yeah. Um, but something that was interesting uh, that she said to me was, particularly with MTHFR, was that as a woman, when we fall pregnant, we're often told, oh, you must have lots of folate. You must be taking folate supplements and that that can often be quite problematic and make you quite unwell um, if you've got MTHFR. And so she said to me, look, if you ever plan on um, trying to fall pregnant in the future, we need to, let's let's do that test before that occurs. And it's quite interesting that we, uh, you know, again, this carte blanche messaging that we often get from the good old marketers out there of which (laughs) I am a qualified marketer. So I I, I, you know, I understand what their job is, but we we shouldn't be taking a carte blanche approach to our health and what works for one doesn't necessarily work for another. And that in go- goes for food and supplements and treatments and everything. Oh, absolutely. And and actually, Dr. Lynch has a really great, he just announced this, it was on uh, March 27th. And he it was great what you just said, because he talks about from gut health to pregnancy, the methylation is, is essential. So I think, and he says, but it doesn't mean you should reach for folic acid. So that's exactly the post that he just posted. And I retweeted. Um, it's really, really great. He's amazing. Yeah, definitely. You have a four step program to treating SIBO, rebalance, reinforce, uh, remedy and renew. And we have obviously talked about quite a lot of that uh, throughout today's conversation. Is, is there anything else you'd like to touch on around your four steps that you think are important to highlight that we may not have talked about yet? Well, I, I will share that prior to the SIBO symposium, I didn't, we didn't have the evidence that shows there is a receptor for a xenoestrogen. Um, so I think that's, that's the biggest message that I have and I'm sharing, um, in terms of the enzyme component, the COMT enzyme being where we're processing estrogen, that bile is a component of recycling estrogen. And then there's the MAOA enzyme, which is an X chromosome. Um, so inherently, of course, women will get this kind of put on them, right? Um, that's just human nature but at the same time those that's another piece where I say okay and interestingly this enzyme is affected by berberine um, both the MAOA and MAOA 
M-A-O-B enzyme. So, um, and so berberine can decrease its enzymatic activity. Now, I'm not saying that that's good or bad, anybody, okay? Again, we have to think of this dynamic system and walk through the factory to say, is that good or bad over here? Uh, because, but ascorbic acid greater than four grams can increase this enzyme's activity. So that's how I'm able to make more adjustments or say, oh, no, please don't get that high dose vitamin C IV. I know, you know, I know you're getting sold on that. And I'm not saying sold as in a negative, although sometimes that can be the case. Um, it can be uh, very disconcerting when I see people buying hundreds of dollars of supplements repeatedly and not getting any better. Um, but again, that, you know, that's sometimes what people are looking for. I might be looking for, wow, look, I've identified this is a potential in your case. Let's try one particular nutrient. And in fact, you'd, again, similar to baking soda, you'd be profound at how riboflavin, which is a cofactor for a few enzymes, can give me very specific information. And that's just B2. You know, we're talking one nutrient. Um, and again, that empowers the patient to say, or the client to say, okay, this is what I'm experiencing from this one thing. Yeah. With regards to the future of SIBO, what's your, what's your um, view on where this is going uh, and you know, what it's going to look like over the next couple of years? Well, I believe it's going to be called small intestine microbial overgrowth. Um, of course, I don't think SIBO will ever go away, but I know the, or the conversation rather of its other microbes is warranted. Um, and I believe and will would love to be dated as in terms of even saying that it comes down to the environmental toxins, folks. These critters thrive in estrogen dominance. And so I don't care. I don't have to identify. I can save people hundreds of dollars. And even right now with functional medicine, um, the trend is to identify the toxins. Um, we can get urine and blood and, and BPA. You can get every chemical they can possibly test for now. Again, I don't even, I, I would like to go there and might be going there actually with a study that we will be doing with the University of Michigan. That's very exciting. But we've also identified a biomarker that we're excited about that doesn't need that information. We would actually rather see the biomarker be more stable and then look reflexively to say, well, what chemicals affected this human? And maybe then look and see what the common denominator may be. But the liver tells us. The liver, um, again, it releases the sex hormone binding globulin. And that is a response to endogenous, our own hormones, but it's also in response to exogenous. And again, not just like some practitioners don't look at reverse T3, which also, if elevated over 16 percent is also an indication of environmental toxins that's also in the evidence and yeah so there are even some microbes that affect our pituitary um, again it's in the cdc in this extreme you know uh, maybe rural or underdeveloped countries however i've suspected a microbe that is affecting the pituitary gland even in a 12 year old and um, yeah, so it's been very interesting. And lo and behold, that microbe also will thrive in estrogen dominance.
Mm. And so many products that we use in our day-to-day lives uh, can put us into this estrogen-dominant state through being toxic to the system. And and uh, I know that I myself have cleared out a whole range of things that I was using. I've changed the types of lotions I've used on my skin and my makeup and my shampoo and conditioner and my toothpaste and, and everything has really – I've just – been looking for products and now use products that have less and less toxins in them are they the best thing i could ever use i don't know because it's all Mm -hmm. what we know today Uh, but at least i'm trying to reduce the load on my body than what i used to do (laughs) some years ago exactly oh my goodness and i will i again just recently you know with somebody where they go oh no oh no and i'm like i'm not judging it's what i was there i took it step by step you finish out your detergent and the next time you buy it you buy a new one you know you don't have to go and clean out the house all you know right off the bat everything has to be within you know yeah, and I took I took about twelve months to change things yeah, out because nice. I did the same thing every time I finished something I'd switch it out to something mm-hmm. else, and not every time that I switched it out to a new product was that product very good. So you've got to try, but I you know I didn't want to spend a lot of money, so I just did it every time a product ended, and and now I've got better products in my sure. drawers. But I'm sure that in five years' time I'll look back and go, oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I think you know as we as our uh, knowledge and understanding of the microbiome and our gut and the toxins in which we live uh, are exposed to and live with every day um, increases that can only improve the outcomes I hope for health (laughs) yeah well I mean it's there's a study showing the glyphosate affecting the migrating motor complex like specifically phase three so um, that's it's you know on one hand it's sad but it's also exciting Mm, it is Dr. Melanie Keller, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the Healthy Gut podcast today. We have covered all sorts of topics, which I'm sure my listeners um, will really enjoy. I had a lot of questions asked of me to ask you. We've got through quite a few of them. There were many, (laughs) so I couldn't fit them all in into this interview, uh, we know. But it's been a joy to have you on the show. Thanks so much for coming on. Yes, thank you. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Dr. Melanie Keller. I definitely enjoyed sitting there with her in Los Angeles, chatting to her about all things SIBO. You can get the show notes or a full transcription of today's episode. Simply head to thehealthygut.co forward slash four steps. And that's the number four. So number four steps or one word. I love hearing your feedback, so don't forget to leave a rating and review in iTunes or the app you use to listen to this podcast. And if you have a suggestion for a future topic or a guest you would like me to interview, I would love to hear from you. So drop me a line at info at thehealthygut.co with your feedback. And don't forget to come and connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, Pinterest and Google+. Just look for us under The Healthy Gut. Coming up on next week's show, I'm still in Los Angeles and I am joined by the lovely Dr. Adam Sanford. We take the time to answer a lot of the questions that I get asked every week from people from all around the world regarding SIBO. So tune in. We're answering your questions with Dr. Adam Sanford. 
You've been listening to the Healthy Gut Podcast with your host, Rebecca Coombs. To learn more about the Healthy Gut or our podcast, head to thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast. And as we are fully funding this podcast, if you would like to help support the continuation of this podcast so that we can continue to bring you future episodes, all you need to do is make a contribution at thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast. We would like to thank Belinda Coombs for the production, editing and original music score of this podcast. To hear more of Belinda's music, head to soundcloud.com forward slash Belinda Coombs. The Healthy Gut Podcast is a production of The Healthy Gut. Thanks for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.